All right, if we can uh, <clears throat> bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, thank you for a new day, Lord. Thank you for such wonderful weather, Father, that reminds us of how majestic of a creator you are, that you spoke this existence into being, and that you found it in your heart to make us part of it. And even though, Lord, we uh, departed from you, Father, that we wanted to be like gods ourselves, Father, uh, you have orchestrated the most heroic uh, saving endeavor, Father, that you have come to save us here on earth, Lord, and to adopt us as sons and daughters. So, Father, as we work through the Gospel of Mark and we bring this sermon into a close, Lord, between these next two sermons, we pray, Father, that every moment may be sweet, may be sacred, may be holy, and may be reflecting of your majestic and graceful nature. Father, in your name we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we worship. Amen. So today's sermon, it's actually my 30th sermon, it's pretty awesome, and it's entitled, Who Am I? You could also give it a subtitle if you want to write it down. The subtitle is Test and Trial. So the title of this sermon is, Who Am I? Obviously, it's not the ninth. And we'll be working through Mark chapter 14, verses, uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 20. So you guys know by now that one of the things we've been primarily concerned about is questions. We've been talking a lot about questions the second half of this sermon series. And the thing is about questions is that questions can be life-changing. Remember that we talked about that? Do you guys remember some of the questions we went over that could be life-changing questions? Like, will you marry me? The result of that question is going to change your life forever. Is it a boy or is it a girl? How many are there? One, two, three? Where am I going to go to school? Well, recently, as you guys know, these are actually the last two sermons that I'll be preaching as an elder because we've been surrounded by all these new questions. So Kitty started this ministry over at the summit where she's been counseling, and it's been very fruitful. She has had like five or six different counselees. But as part of this transition of transferring our membership over, as you can imagine, there's all these questions that we're asking of ourselves. So even in that uh, Bible study that we visited... When we separated, I got to ask these guys some questions, and they got to ask some questions from me. And the kind of questions that I was asking is, man, what's it going to be like you know, to go from preaching to being a member of this church and then not knowing anybody? You know, that feeling of starting a church all over again is almost daunting, which it shouldn't be, because you're just going to another body of Christ. And it was really encouraging that the Bible study that I visited, you know, the first thing I told them was like, yeah, I've been at this church for five years. That's half of the time I've been a Christian been a Christian for 10 years, half of it has been spent in this church. It's going to feel really weird going to a new church, a more southern-style church, because at least with Filipinos, there's a lot that resonates with Hispanic culture. And the first thing that the guy said, which, by the way, funny enough, um, the individual is, one, a psychologist, which is, which is perfect for where, where Kitty's ministry is going, and two, he's half Filipino, which is pretty awesome. 
It was also, also the only Asian guy in the group, and it was a very diverse group, which is awesome to see. The other uh, Asian guy I learned was also a Filipino. But questions are just dramatic things. And one of the places you get to see how humanity really looks, likes questions is in like trials. I mean, we have all these forms of entertainment that's just focused on trials. And I've seen a couple of them, and I mean, I think they're pretty boring, like Judge Judy type stuff. Maybe you guys like that. I mean, how in the world can you like learn this guy's life story like in a 15-minute segment? But the thing that's interesting about trials, well, the thing I think that is interesting that people are interested in about trials is that the result of one question can change their life dramatically. And that question is answered by the jury, and the question is, are you or are you not guilty? So we're going to look at a trial today, and we're actually going to bring the section on questions to a close. This is the last sermon on the question section, and we're actually going to look at a trial, in specific Jesus' trial. So today's central truth of the sermon is that today we will review the teaching, the testings, the testing and trial of Jesus, and ask the question, who am I? I thought it would be appropriate to end a series or a section in the series of questions with a question. It seems relevant. Our text is Mark 14, if you want to turn there. And the central truth of the text is that Mark wrote Mark 14, 1 to 15, 20 in order to describe the trial of Jesus and how it fulfills his passion predictions. So the first section of our sermon is actually a review. Now, you guys are probably like, man, Leonard just repeats himself over and over and over again. Well, Jesus did the same thing. He was... Very repetitive because he's trying to get certain points across. I actually think I could summarize every sermon I've preached with one image, and I'm actually going to share that with you at the end. But this section is kind of a review. Chapters 1 through 13. We can summarize 1 through 13 as quotations and questions. Quotations and questions. I told you at the very beginning that the Gospel of Mark really has two pieces. The first half, which is about his ministry his teachings and his acts, his miracles. And then the second half is about his testing, the testing and the trial of Jesus. So I gave you guys some images. I gave you guys some images for this. And the first image was the quotation marks. That's why I gave you guys the image of quotation marks, you know, quotation marks. Because what do quotation marks represent? They represent like when you say something, you put it in quotation marks, right? Like when you read a book and someone's saying something, like a remark. A remark is usually in, quote, in quotations. And when we looked at that first half, what we saw is that Jesus was primarily concerned with, one, teaching, making these remarks, and then, two, having these acts, these miraculous acts that showed you that he was able to have a unique authority when it came to teaching. And as we went through these sections, we stumbled upon this, and we kind of put this on the side, but this was a really important question that came up in chapter 4. And it was like this. This is during one of the miracles. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And this is Mark's reason for writing the gospel. He summarizes the reason in the very first verse of the text, which is that he wants to show you that Jesus is the Son of God. So here we have the question that is woven like a thread through a fabric, through a sweater, throughout the entire text, which is, who is this guy? And why is he here? I mean, who is he? You know, why is it that nature itself obeys him? 
So another image I gave you. So I gave you the image of uh, quotation marks, right? But another image, an image I gave of the image was the word remarkable. So this is, again, to try to help you outline the book of Mark. That first half is about his teachings and about his acts. So you can think of the word, you can either think of quotation marks, or you can think of the word remarkable. And that was one of the sermons I preached. And, and, you know, with the word remark, it's like his teachings. He's making these important remarks. And then these remarks actually do incredible things. He says this remark, I will be clean and heal someone. Son, your sins are forgiven. And peace be still to show his control over nature. Now, he's not only making these remarks, but he's able to make these marks. These remarks. And how is he able to make these authoritative remarks? He does miraculous things. We saw that he fed 5,000. We saw that he walked on water. And this is what makes this first half of the text so remarkable. I mean, Jesus is this remarkable person. The reason we use the images of punctuation marks is because it helps us think of the one who's been punctured. And why is this guy so remarkable? And we see that in this text. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. You guys remember that? Remember how he says, it is I? Ego, I am in the Greek. I am, I am. Which makes you think of Yahweh. But this, this Savior, he's remarkable. And then we got into the second half of the text. And that's when we moved away from the images of the quotation marks to the images of the questions. And we asked ourselves, what are important questions? And we said, man, questions are life-changing. And we wanted to study deeper the questions of Scripture. So the first thing we did is I, I did a study, and I was like, well, if I'm going to you know, preach about questions, let me look at all the questions that are in these chapters. So I went through chapters 1 to 9, and I wrote down all of the questions that I found. And some of the patterns that began to emerge was who was asking questions and how people were responding. That's where we then got to see like the characters in this story, the disciples, the crowd, the Pharisees, Jesus, and the demons. All these individuals are asking these questions and answering questions differently. So, after we looked at those 35 questions, and the main question that we see in there is that woven theme of who is this guy? Who is he? So we saw that in chapter 4, verse 41, the, 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 this verse over here, this is the only question I could find where disciples were asking themselves a question, and that question was, who is this guy? But then we also saw other answers to the questions, like, do you guys remember how that demon answered the question? Remember, what that, how did the demon respond to Jesus? The demon knew exactly who he was. The demon said, son of the most high God. And then Jesus, throughout the text, like in chapter 8, will ask them this, this question. Who do they say that I am? And the disciples are kind of like these bumbling you know, characters, maybe for comic relief, I don't know. But in the story, they're, they're like bumbling over themselves because what do they keep doing all throughout? Messing up. Which is, which is an interesting theme in, in, in the whole canon, in the whole Bible, is that God chooses people who are messed up. He chooses Moses who murdered someone. You know, he chooses Solomon who has an addiction to lust. But he chooses those type of people to work from. So the disciples, it's no different. It's a bunch of guys that are fishermen, and they're bubbling all over themselves. And Jesus asks them this question, who do they say that I am? And they, they get a piece of it right, the Christ. But even then, if you can remember just the images, they keep just doing all these things and keep messing up. So after we looked at those 35 questions, and the main thing that we saw is what we've been saying, that Jesus' identity is the main question here, who is this guy? We came upon 
three questions related to discipleship. Those were the sermons that had these symbols. This question mark, this less equals more, and this omega equals alpha, last equals first. And what we saw is that there are three places between the chapters 8 through 11, three places where Jesus provides specific teachings on discipleship, and then specific teachings on what's going to happen to him. Because another concern of, of Mark is to write this book about discipleship. I mean, we even saw with the end times that his concern at the end of it was that we stay awake, was that we be wakeful disciples. So the questions he asked on discipleship was first, what is the cost of discipleship? And ultimately, Jesus said, well, it's you. I mean, self-sacrifice. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to take up your cross and to carry it. It's a burden. It's suffering for other people. And then we ask this question related to discipleship. Who's the greatest? Remember that they were fighting among themselves? Like, who is the greatest? And Jesus' teaching there was to say that, to bring that child in, and to provide us that image with the child, and to basically say that, who is the greatest? I mean, that's the mentality there is, is humility. To be less is to be more. To be humble is a sign of discipleship. And finally... When he asked the question, what is discipleship, in chapter 10, the image we used was the omega equals alpha, the last will be first. Again, the disciples are arguing, and Jesus basically teaches them that what discipleship looks like is servanthood. It's being a slave to other people. That's where we get our word deacon. It's one of the reasons the, uh, the office of deacon exists is so we're supposed to look to those people and say, oh, that's what, you know, slave-like servanthood, not American colonial slavery but the type of slavery that was envisioned in the Old Testament, which is just this giving of the self. So we saw that discipleship was about self-sacrifice, about humility, and about servanthood. And we kind of overlooked a little bit the other three pieces. Every time that we had a teaching on discipleship, something came before it. And what came before it, it's an interesting parallel with like Jesus' teachings. Jesus didn't you know, do the miracle first and then teach. Jesus had a pattern throughout the, the gospel where he would teach and then he would do the miracles. And he never allowed the miracles to override his teachings to the point where he had that awesome escape route on the boat planned just so he could be back there and teach because he knew the people wanted the healing so bad. But now attached to these three is another parallel. is before every discipleship teaching, Jesus predicts his death. He predicts his passion. He identifies himself with I am statements but then he predicts what's going to happen to him. So I'm going to read these with you guys. It's probably small, so if you can't read it, just look in your Bible. Well, actually, just listen. Just listen. And I'm going to read it out loud. And he, this is in chapter 8. This is the first passion prediction. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then this is in chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And then finally, the third passion prediction in chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So, he makes this important passion prediction, which the disciples just don't get. Why? Well, because the disciples were expecting what? This political ruler. That's who they thought the Messiah was going to be. And they just didn't get it, which is one of the reasons Jesus has this emphasis. So, entering into our next section, we had a summary there of the first sermon. And a summary of what we were doing with questions. And that finally gets us to this position here. Now, to look at the importance of questions, what I did was I looked at the questions. Remember? That's what I was just talking about. I looked at all the different questions in those first nine chapters. And then we looked at questions concerning discipleship. So I said, well, with this final sermon on questions, I might as well look at all the questions that were asked in chapter 14 to 15. Because that's, 14 and 15 is a lot to preach to. So I said, man, I can't go over every single piece. So I'm just going to look at the questions, because what do questions do in a story? Questions help you understand what's going on. You know, you look at the questions in a story, and you can begin to get a flavor of what's happening. So some of the questions, just to summarize you guys, to bring us to this verse. I've got to get here to chapter 14, so just touching on some of these questions to get there. The disciples asked themselves a question in chapter 14. Why was the ointment wasted like that? This is the incident of that woman who anoints Jesus with the nard. Not to be confused with Leonard. She, she anoints Jesus with the nard, and they're like, what are you doing? You know, like, you could have sold that. That's just super expensive. You could have sold that and give it to the poor. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. You know, she's anointing me for burial. Like, she gets it. The disciples still don't get it. This woman gets it. This, you know, the nard woman gets it. And the disciples who've been around him the entire time don't get it. And Jesus says, man, you guys don't understand. She's preparing me for, bur- for burial. She gets it. You know, and, and it says in there, Jesus says that she's going to be known all throughout the world whenever the gospel is proclaimed. And she is. I mean, look what just happened right now. So after that, you've got a section in chapter 14, verse 12, where the disciples ask Jesus, where are we going to celebrate the Passover? And then you have this incident where Jesus is like, okay, you're just going to go into this town, and then you're going to find this guy, and whatever you know, building this guy walks in, I want you to ask them this question. Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So there's this miraculous occurrence where then they have this, the, pass, the Passover narrative, and, and Jesus breaks bread with the disciples, and he predicts that one of them is going to backstab him. So then, in chapter 14, verse 37, you have Jesus praying. Because what we're seeing in the second half is like birth pains. The closer and closer and closer we get to the, rest, to the crucifixion, the more and more intense Jesus' testing and trials is becoming. Like those contractions leading up to the labor. And here we see that Jesus is praying. And what do the disciples keep doing when Jesus prays? He takes three disciples with him. And what do they keep doing when he's out there praying? Why is that, why is that ironic? Why is that funny? Anyone know why that's funny? What did we preach about last weekend? Don't stay awake. So it's like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, did they even listen to what Jesus was saying? I mean, they're, they're sleeping, and Jesus catches them twice. Again, this is a book about discipleship. So he finds them sleeping, and he says, are you still, he says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? And later on he says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? And then Jesus finally says, well, you know what? They're probably just physically tired, you know, and he provides a real insightful comment about, you know, the, the connection between physical and, you know, 
like your spiritual sensibility. Like you're going to be more prone to do stupid things when you're tired. And then he just, you know, goes to the disciples. Then we get, so, hey, I'll show this to you. What pattern, did you see this here, these colors? You guys see these colors? What colors are these? You got green and you got what? Purple. Because I like to put colors sometimes in my Bible and stuff to look at, like, find patterns. So the pattern you see here is what? What happens in, in the middle? It turns what? Yeah, it turns orange, right? So, like, what you see is, like, this, the color is, like, who's asking the question? So you got green, purple, green, purple, you know, green is the disciples, and then I use purple for Jesus. And then all of a sudden what happens? You get all these oranges, and the oranges are the crowd, they're the others. So what does that color automatically tell me? Like remember I told you that if you look at questions, you can see something's happening in the story. I see all this green and all this purple, which is the disciples and Jesus questioning back and forth. And then all of a sudden, those colors stop. And the only people asking questions are these, are what I use for orange. And orange is Pontius Pilate. Orange is, you know, the others, the non-believers. So what happens then in verse four, in chapter 14, actually, no, let me stop. Let me go before that. This is the first place orange comes in my little color scheme. And it comes in 14, verse 48. Yeah, I don't have it in there, but this is Mark, verse 14, verse 48. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. The full verses, and Jesus said to them, have you come out as, as, out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? So what happens here, it's the first time that the others come in this, in this little section I treated, the orange. They're like, I put, you know, there, like the crowd, because that, that was one of the characters throughout the Bible. The Pharisees, the scribes, this is the first time they come up. And what are they doing? Well, here, this is the scene where you got poor lighting back then, so they, Judas was used to identify who Jesus was. And then once he did that, and the irony there is he used a kiss and he called him teacher rabbi. You know, two very distinguished, respectful gestures to identify him to the, um, to the council and the council's guards, and they come and they arrest Jesus. So right after this happens, the only people that are going to be asking questions now are these orange, are the council. And that's where we get to our text. Now here Jesus has been captured. And now we've moved from testing that second half of Mark. You know, all those questions that we looked at, those were all about testing Jesus' authority. And they got more and more and more pronounced. And now we're going from testing to the actual trial. And here Jesus is put on trial. And now we get to finally enter our text here. So, Mark 14, we're going to read verses 53 through 65. And then the other piece of text that we're going to read is Mark 15, 1 through 15. So Mark 14, verse 53 to 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another one, not made with hands. And even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Here's our question. Have you no answer to make? That's the fulfillment of a prophecy right after this. What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent. 
and made no answer. You've got a couple different prophecies in the Old Testament about that. Like, you know, a sheep silent before the shearers means that you have stuff there in, in um, you know, all throughout, all throughout the Old Testament about how, you know, he's going to come and he's, like, right before his persecution, he's just going to be silent. So then he continues. And now he asks him another question. So the first question, Jesus is just silent. And then here comes our next question. Oh, this is the one you want to underline in your Bible. I mean, this is the important question again. Like chapter 4, Mark 1, 1, that verse in chapter 4, and this are like the key questions. So here it's nice that he puts the key question here at the end of our, of our series. Are, this is what the chief priest asked him. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, what does he say? Oh my gosh, we're slapping the chief, chief priest's face, right? I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We saw that in last week's sermon as a sign of Jesus' divinity that he was going to come riding the clouds. Only God is associated, only Yahweh is associated with having control over nature and being on equal to him. There's a verse, uh, this is also correlates to a prophecy in the Old Testament about how even David calls someone Lord and how can you know, someone call, like if, if they're just a child of David, how can, they call, how can David even call that person Lord? So Jesus responds and says, I am. I mean, that's all you need to know. I am. And if you don't get it, you know, I'm going to come riding the clouds. And then you can see how this, what this does to the high priest. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And what's the penalty for blasphemy? Death, stoning, but only... If you're guilty of blasphemy. In other words, they didn't consider the fact that, well, what is? What if this is, you know, the divine son of man? What is your decision? So now he goes, he's talking to the rest of the council, and he says, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They beat him up. I'm going to zoom a little bit forward to our last piece of the text. Mark 15, verses 1 to 15. Continuation of his trial. But the council can't just execute him because they're under the rule of Rome and only Rome has the power of the sword. It's one of the reasons why if you ever look at like a Roman emblems, you know, you'll see it, the sword featured prominently in the imperial insignia because it's them basically telling the world we have the power of authority. And the Bible actually carries that image in Romans chapter 13 where it says that the government has the power of the sword. Luther used to say that the sword is not a tickle to be, you know, is not a feather to tickle people with. But what it's saying there is that the government, our government, any government, any just government has the power of the sword. But anyway, going back to here, Mark 15 verses 1 to 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, here's Pilate's first question, are you the king of the Jews? Because the council brought him to Pilate to say, well, he's not going to care about our religious dispute, but if this person is seen as an insurrector, is seen as someone trying to replace Caesar and not acknowledging Caesar's role, the penalty was death. So this is the strategy they invoke, and that's one of the reasons he says he's king of the Jews, which, again, is more irony, because who is he? He is the king of the Jews. He's the, the true Messiah. But it continues. And Jesus answered him, you have said so. 
And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Again, fulfilling those Old Testament prophecies. Last piece of the text. You want to bear with me? Now, at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named uh, Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he asked them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? So now, no more questions that Jesus, now where are the questions going? To the crowd. Now you got Orange questioning Orange. You got Pilate questioning the crowd. These non-believers questioning these non-believers. By the way, where are the disciples? Where are they? Gone. What, what did Peter do? Peter denied him. Did Peter listen to those three teachings on discipleship? I mean, didn't he tell him what it was going to cost? Hold, hold on to that. Hmm. Taste that. Taste that. Because you're going to taste it again at the close of the sermon. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them, Barabbas, instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Here's his next question to the crowd. And how do they respond? Crucify him. The most excruciating, you know, demeaning, um, embarrassing, mutilating execution that they had. Where we get our word excruciating from. They had to invent a word just to describe how painful it was. By the way, what was that first rule of discipleship? You're going to have to carry your cross. And what, what are some Christians experiencing right now in the Middle East? Literal crucifixion. I mean, I mean there's a blatant example of the truth of the teaching. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them uh, Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And that punishment alone, to be scourged, to be whipped, you know, with the nine of tails, was enough to have people murdered. So, we saw all of our different questions, right? We saw some patterns in these questions. And we saw the change here in the narrative, where ultimately the questions begin to be asked, you know, from the crowd to the crowd, from the non-believers to the non-believers. And Jesus is there remaining silent to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy. How did the council respond? When Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, you know, brought before the Pharisees, how did they respond? Blasphemy, right? Ripping their things open. I mean, so have you ever been so angry you punched someone? Don't answer that. <laughs> but I mean, have you ever like have you ever been so angry that you were physically angry? Like physically angry. I mean, that's how angry the Pharisees were. They were so angry that they were physically angry to the point where they beat this guy up and just punched him. How did Pilate respond? You know, like, all right, I mean, if this is what you guys really want, you know, Pilate's always an interesting character because he's just like in this position. He's just like, I mean, he almost tries. Like, are you guys sure? Like, you guys don't want this insurrectionist? You just want this, you know, Jesus guy? Are you sure? He always says, all right, passive, take him. How did the crowd respond? In political theory, one of the, like, the biggest uh, things you'll see throughout, it doesn't matter if it was the Greeks or if it was uh, you know, uh, medieval you know, theologians, the crowd 
was a thing to be feared in politics. I mean, not like this. This is a crowd, right? No, we mean the crowd, like the rioting, the mob. So how did the mob get? They just got stirred up. That's all it took was to get stirred up a little bit, and then they were demanding what? Blood. They were demanding blood. How did the disciples respond? Well, they did it. They were out of the picture. They were gone. You know? And that's why Jesus was praying in the efforts of this woman. By the way, who were the only ones that remained? The women. The women. Ah, that's what you get. Yeah. Take it. They're the ones that were like, Jesus, we have to go get these bodies. The women. Men were out of the picture. They're like, oh, we don't have as much pain tolerance as women. They could have babies. We can't. Out of here. Boom. But finally, how did Jesus answer? I mean, he just, what? He didn't, right? I mean, first, he acknowledged who he was. And he told them who he was. Now, Jesus could have said, I am the Son of God. Bam! Right? Boom! No, Jesus said, this is to fulfill prophecy. I'm coming for a reason. This is happening to me for a reason. This is part of who it is to be the Son of God. Who it is to be the Son of Man who's come to lay his life down for his sheep. We see that in verse 14, 62, he answers, and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Even when he was on the cross, the fellow thieves that were with him were mocking him. And people were coming up and saying, if you are, you know, the king of the, king of the Jews, I mean, why don't you just call Elijah to come down and rescue you? Humiliating, humiliating, humiliating. So the summary, quotation marks, Helps you think of that first half. Another image I gave you was remarkable. Helps you think of the remarks. This is why John, you know, John opens up his, his gospel by saying, you know, Jesus was the Word, the Word was God. I mean, there's literal power in the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. God creates with the Word of God. He literally speaks existence into being. And now here comes the Word to bring life. And he's remarkable. He makes these remarks that are unlike anything we've ever heard. And then he backs them up with an authority over nature and these miraculous events that show that he's able to make them. And then we brought up question marks, because question marks help us think of questions. And what are associated with questions? Well, a lot of times, when young people think of questions, they think of tests. And here, Jesus has a real big test. And as he gets closer and closer and closer to the crucifixion, like those birth pains, they get more and more and more intense. People are coming and they're testing him even more and more and more until ultimately he goes to trial. And what we saw there is that he goes before the council and then ultimately punches Pilate and the people. So, again, you guys had highlighted some of the ways that they responded, right? Well, then how do we respond? I mean, that's, that's going to be a lead-up to the question that we're going to close the sermon on. How do we respond? Are we responding like Pontius? Are we responding like the disciples? Are we responding like the crowd asking for blood? I mean, there's really two directions that this question could even take, right? And it's based off of this question. Who is it? Who is it? How you answer this question will determine how you answer all questions. Literally, all questions. You know, if he is not the Son of God, you don't identify him and recognize him as the Son of God, that is life-changing. That is death. But now, if you recognize him as the I am, that allows you to answer the second question. Who am I? Who am I is one of the single most important questions that you could ever ask yourself. 
Uh, there's a group of philosophers called ex uh, existentialists. I mean, have you read existentialism? I mean, there's some crazy stuff in there, but it's all about you know, like how the universe is centered on me and, and answering this question, who am I? So who am I? If you are a child of God, you've been adopted into grace, that fundamentally will change everything that you do. You know? And it's not just a question that you ask, like, you know, who am I? My name is Leonard. No. Answering the question, who am I? You know, a son, a son of God, I'm I'm you know, been adopted and grafted by Christ's work, will fundamentally change everything. How? So you're at work and you ask the question, who am I? And work is difficult. If you are a disciple of Christ, even how you work, who am I at work, is going to change. Because remember those three rules, the three things that he teaches about discipleship? Humility, self-sacrifice, and servanthood? Fundamentally changes your motivation for working. It's not about monetary compensation. You already are going to inherit you know, the whole world because of who you are, a, a daughter or son of Christ. So you don't have to worry about acquiring wealth and pleasure here in the now. You get to worry about working for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of people, for serving people, because there's a good that comes out of work. You're, pro you're producing you know, supplies. You know, you're healing people. You know, you're growing an economy. It also affects you when you ask the question, who am I at home? Remember my brother Luther and his, uh, his, his whole discussions about fatherhood when we did that father, Father's Day sermon? I mean, it fundamentally changes everything you do. It changes your motivations for being a father, your motivations for being a mother, your motivations for being a son or a daughter or a sibling or a cousin or a grandmother. Because, again, those principles of discipleship come into play. Well, what about suffering? It fundamentally changes suffering. I mean, Jesus tells you that you're called to suffer. One of the prayers I used to pray often was, Lord, let me suffer for someone else because it's so much easier for me to suffer than it is for a non-believer because I know that I'm not going to suffer for all of eternity. And that this is a speck, a grain of sand along the beach of eternity. Well, what about the question why you're sinning? That fundamentally changes that question as well. Who am I when I sin? You're telling God who you are when you sin. You know? Yet you want to be the king of the universe. That you think you know what's better for you than God does. What about when changing diapers? Remember that? One of my favorite illustrations from Luther. It fundamentally changes how you change diapers. And, I've, and now that I have two kids, I'm changing twice as many. So this is always refreshing, no pun intended, um, for me whenever I'm changing diapers because I understand, like Jesus, when he brought that child in as an image of what I'm supposed to be like in discipleship, that I'm even supposed to hold a stinky, dirty, good-for-nothing child who can't give me anything in return, can't pay my paycheck, can't pay off my mortgage, and eats me out of house and home. I'm supposed to serve that child more than myself. And that's fundamentally changes when you ask her, who am I when I change a diaper? And finally, it also fundamentally changes when you ask this question. Who am I when I'm asking for forgiveness? You know, when you are grafted, you know what it means to be grafted? I don't even illustrate. Well, yeah, you guys should know what grafted, grafted means because you guys are in the medical field. What does it mean to be grafted? It's like you literally take someone else's skin and what do you do? I mean, you make it one. Like you don't go and say, Oh, yeah, that piece, that, the skin's still separate. No, it's been grafted. It's now part of the body. And that's what happens when you go and identify God, the Son of God, as who he is. Yahweh having come to rescue them. You get grafted into that body, and you get to become a son of God. And when you do sin, that forgiveness is always there. 
and you get to and you say, I'm a son of God, I get to look back at what Jesus did and what people did to Jesus, and even those people, even the people that crucified Jesus, weren't too far from his forgiveness if they were just to turn to him in repentance. So that last question, who am I, is really a second question. Whose am I? I mean, that will fundamentally change your life. And it can go in one or two directions. You either are or not, or not a child of God. You either have yourself as the controller of your universe, or you recognize God as the controller. And every single sermon that I've preached has really been the same sermon if you've caught on. Which is, when Jesus goes to summarize the greatest commandment, what does he say? Love the Lord your God. And what? In that order. And all he's doing there is summarizing the Ten Commandments. That's all he's doing. Ten Commandments, the first four, also called the Decalogue, two tables. First four are about God. Last six are about how to treat your neighbor. That's what all these sermons are about. That's what Remarkable is about. That's what the Gospels are about. It's about, one, recognizing who God is and that God is at the center of the universe. And that is the starting premise. Not who am I, but whose am I. Who he is. Or to put another way that may not be grammatically correct, who... I am. Who am I? But who is the I am? Who is I am? Who is he? Who is the Son of God? And how you answer that question will affect that question right there. Who am I? If you can bow your head and close your eyes. Father, I pray, Lord, for those who could respond to that question by saying, I am uh, a son or daughter of the Christ of the Most High God, Lord. If they can answer that question like that and they can rest in the assurance of the forgiveness of their sins in the propitiation of the work of Christ, then, Father, I pray that, may, that they may not be like the disciples were in the New Testament. They may not flee when opportunity arises them, whether in temptation from a sin, Lord, or whether an opportunity to serve people at work. Father, they may not be like the disciples before the resurrection by just being passive. By running away. Father, I pray for those, Lord, who do not call Jesus the Son of God. Who do not recognize that he is the creator of the universe. And instead are fooled by their sinfulness into thinking that they are. Into not wanting to give up control of what little piece of existence they have here, Lord. For those people, may they recognize that they weren't bystanders. Lord, by sinning against the God of the Most High. They are like those in the crowd who were calling for the blood, Lord. But ultimately, as we'll find in our final sermon, in the sermon of the exclamation mark, that Jesus comes and places an exclamation mark in the shape of a cross for all of eternity when he dies on the cross and he resurrects for them. That by his blood, those Christ for blood, that sinfulness will be healed. So Father, I pray that as we end this sermon, may they meditate in the fullness and the glorious of you, God, the answer to those questions. Who is the I am? Who am I? And whose am I? In your name we pray and we give you thanks. Amen.